0: It was the last week of the due diligence period that we canceled the contract. I would say that we we found out about it about probably three weeks before. And I say we as in the broker, the buyers, the sellers, like we all kind of discovered this situation together while we were under due diligence. And, it, you know, it wasn't like there's was any anybody was withholding information. It was quite the discovery process. And I'm really thankful that we didn't have hard money down. Then it would have become a really expensive experience. It's kind of evolved my perspective on hard money, you know, non-refundable earnest money deposits to get into hundred plus apartment deals. I think I have a lot more scrutiny behind the owners. And did they have a business plan? Did they execute it? Do they have boots on the ground? You know, I'm, I'm starting to, to scrutinize more of the previous owners and not just say, oh, this is a nice asset. I want to get it under contract.
1: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is going to share about a failed project. What a letdown, what a disappointment this had to have been for him. But he's going to go through some things that were crucial in figuring out that, man, we should not do this deal. You're going to hear about red flags from about the seller, things that you need to see as you're dealing with other owners. And, you know, as they're looking to sell their projects, man, this may not be something you want to move forward on because of these things you're seeing. But then also, he has a unique way of, direct-to-seller marketing. I don't think I've heard of before. So you're going to hear all of that today, uh, along with a few other other things, that habits and things you know I always ask about, because I love just self-improvement. I love helping all of us improve individually within our businesses as a whole, even some other conferences and things that he's had success with. But our guest today is Tommy Brandt. He calls himself a recovering electrical engineer and data scientist turned full-time real estate investor, He started TB Capital Group as a tool to buy real estate with family, friends, and partners. He helps busy professionals accelerate their wealth through passively investing in real estate. You're going to learn a lot from Tommy today. Tommy, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on. I appreciate you sharing that you are a long-time listener as well, or are a long-time listener, and honored to have you uh, now as a guest. You, know, you and I briefly got to connect at a, at the Best Ever Conference earlier this year, and so uh, welcome to the show. Give the listeners a little bit about yourself, real estate, man, what are you doing, Where maybe where you're located, uh, and let's jump into this, quote, you know, failed deal uh, and some things that we can learn from you. Sure.
0: Yeah, Wendy, thank you so much for having me on. I, I'm both honored and humbled to to be here. It is pretty interesting to go full circle from listening to now being a guest on the, the podcast. So I mean, it's quite serendipitous whenever we ran into each other at uh, best ever. So glad to be here. Tommy Brandt. I am based out of the Nashville area. I'm a recovering electrical engineer of 13 years. I went full-time in real estate last August. And so primarily around apartment syndication, although I'd have some long-term rentals and uh, I'm dipping my toe in the short-term rental Self-management space there as well. I guess how I kind of got started into real estate was uh, I was a sophomore in college and I worked for a friend of mine's dad who was a general contractor and he made mobile homes rent ready. So we're in Middle Georgia at the time and about fifteen percent of that demographic was post eviction. So we're coming into some of these units and there's trash everywhere. There's used diapers in the corner. There's hypodermic needles everywhere and the utilities have been cut off for weeks. And you're playing who's going to open the fridge? Not it. Through that you you do a couple things. One, you build character, definitely one. Um, but two, you, you kind of build a a vision. So knowing what the end product is going to look like through all the clutter, that gave me a lot of good experience. And then 2011, I bought my first home. It was a short sale in a Nashville submarket, And then it was a slow live and flip. And I rented it out of bedroom before I knew what house hacking was to a colleague of mine. And so that kind of gave me my bearings in the real estate space. And then whenever we liquidated that property in 2020, it was a matter of getting educated and they say more money, more problems. I was like, what do I do with this? I need it to work for me. So getting educated was a big part of that. And then in a six-month, time period, I bought three long-term rentals. Since then, I've invested in two apartment syndications. And then we closed on a short-term rental down in Panama City Beach, Florida.
1: Nice. Wow. You're moving and shaking. That's for sure, to say the least. Hey, yeah, I want to jump into this 52-unit deal that you call the failed deal, but I doubt it was really failed. Obviously, you shared a few details with me, but no doubt you learned a lot. And I would say it's probably a success that you didn't do it based on what we're going to learn today. But let's dive in to that project and give us some details about the deal, maybe why you liked it, those things, and and we'll dive in date For sure. Yeah. So that would
0: have been my first deal as a co-GP. It would have validated my decision to go full-time in real estate and build a business around multifamily syndication. Um, so it was definitely a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster. but thankfully we had some veterans on the deal with us to kind of help guide us and, and diffuse the emotions out of the situation and be like, look, this is what's going on. And this was what we need to avoid. Uh, some of the history on that one. So that was, uh, we'd been building a broker relationship for several months um, here locally in Nashville. And then we ended up getting wind of the pocket listing, kind of had a good idea of who else was getting wind of that pocket listing, we kind of assembled a team, brought value to them by doing a lot of the upfront market analysis and underwriting and say, hey, this looks and smells like a good deal. Um, what do you think? And so he got it validated. He brought in some of the remaining team members that we need. And so within a week's time span, we had gotten wind of the deal and had it under contract. And to me, that's fast moving. So just knowing that something exists to now having an executed contract, that was really exciting, but I couldn't have done it if, if I wasn't networking for several months and I didn't know my market inside and out. So that's definitely a prerequisite to Um, getting any apartment deal under contract. That was kind of the history of it. That was a sourcing. So it was a pocket listing from a broker. We had a lender lined up. Um, We went through physical inspection. There were some surprises along the way. We were able to talk through those in, in negotiation and we got pretty much everything we asked for. And that one, what really kind of killed the deal was the accounting side of things, the things that people don't think about. So the the P&L that was put together in Excel, right, kind of indicated that there wasn't a lot of outstanding balance. Things were doing well. The property management franchise that hired the on site property manager was actually a tenant at the apartment complex, and they weren't really getting a lot of scrutiny behind their operations. They stopped paying rent for a couple months, said, oh, hey, buddies, you know, you don't have to pay rent. It wasn't getting caught, was coaching their friends on how to not pay rent. This went on for about a year. And so there was a 100 Hundred twenty seven thousand dollars on outstanding balance rent delinquent rents you know for the property and so we brought the lender up to speed and he said you know like what are our options here and so he said all right well your 80 percent loan to cost just went to 60 percent loan to value and so that's really close to like new construction as if like there wasn't an asset there to begin with and so it's just like okay we probably could have still done the deal and paused distributions for 12 to 18 months while we went through this eviction process and release and got new tenants in there but in terms of other options we could have done a master lease option where we didn't really transact, but we said, all right, we're going to take over the property, but you promised to sell to us at this price at, at you know, why given date? But there was just too much risk in that because we didn't really know the person. They weren't local. God forbid they got hit by a bus and their kid said, oh, by the way, I don't want to sell this. And, you know, sue me. There was just a couple things that was outside of our risk tolerance of the fact that our, a fifth of our capital, like, quadrupled in expense. If you compare it to what we would have gotten in an interest rate from a loan to the returns we're underwriting for our investors. I guess that's kind of the, the whole history for the failed deal. But thank goodness we have mentors in that one to kind of ensure that we're looking at return on effort. You know, do we want to be running through the mud waist high in this, you know, six to nine months from now when maybe we'll be under two other deals that are just going way easier.
1: And to speak to the timing of when you learned about the, obviously the large delinquency, you know, where, where were you at in this process, you know, disclosed or not, or when it was disclosed or how, you know, how you all walk through that we were
0: still within our due diligence period so we had put down earnest money it was refundable because there was just hardly anyone this deal was was sent out to so it was about the the last week of the due diligence period, where we said, "Okay, we have literally everything else figured out. Let's hone in on these uh, outstanding delinquents." And so it was the last week of the, the due diligence period that we canceled the contract. I would say that we we found out about it about probably three weeks before. And I say we, as in the broker, the buyers, the sellers, like we all kind of discovered the situation together while we were under due diligence. And, and it was just you know it wasn't like there's was any anybody was withholding information, but it was quite the discovery process. And I'm really thankful that we didn't have hard money down. Then it would have become a really expensive. Expensive experience. Um, so it's, it's kind of evolved my perspective on hard money, um, you know, non-refundable earnest money deposits to get into hundred plus apartment deals. I think I have a lot more scrutiny behind the owners and did they have a business plan? Did they execute it? Do they have boots on the ground? You know, I'm, I'm starting to, to scrutinize more of the previous owners and not just say, oh, this is a nice asset. I want to get it under contract.
1: Makes a ton of sense. No doubt about it. <laughs> who that seller is, right? I mean, the level of professionalism that they have, you know, or how the level that they operate at professionally, uh, you know, and, and even t- down to how they're treating their employees and their tenants and all those things. Because guess what? You're inheriting a lot of that, you know, right? You know, that culture as you take on that project. But, you know, you mentioned, yeah, you didn't have hard money down. And so, but it was under contract. And so what was the process there when you were going to have money down or what did that look like? Or maybe you had some
0: earnest money in, but it wasn't hard yet. In terms of the due diligence period, I guess we kind of structured it as a 30-day due diligence period and then kind of a, another 30-day window there. And then we put in the the ability to purchase 30-day extensions based off of 0.25% of purchase price. And so that would help us navigate if there are any issues with the loan and stuff like that. But the due diligence period doesn't start until we get all of our documents. That was kind of how we worded it in the contract there. And so while it it took about three weeks for us to get everything um, from the previous seller. And so while we were doing that, we were talking to the property manager. We were lining up uh, roof inspections, plumbing inspections, building inspections. And so really the day of due diligence started, the day that we were doing our inspection, we were on site. So we, we were very quick about assembling um, everything in order, you making sure we had the ALTA survey, appraisals done, yes or no, that type of at least ordered.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate that. It's helpful just as a listener to think about that process that you all took. What about, you know, what were uh, maybe red flags that you started to see about the seller? When did you see them? Maybe some lessons learned around working with the seller. You know, you mentioned like that's something your personal due diligence on before you even think about the deal. What were some of those lessons? lessons learned? And what did you see in the seller?
0: Yeah, I actually really like this question with me because there's a number of red flags that we should have kind of uh, expected something to to pop up. But I guess one example was they didn't really have a team. That was probably the biggest red flag. It was just a solo owner that had syndicated. I don't know if there were maybe people in the background that they had, you know, maybe mentors kind of guiding them or whatever, but there was only reference to one managing partner in this deal. And so that was pretty interesting. So they didn't have boots on the ground to tell them what the on-site property manager, was or wasn't doing. They weren't getting any feedback about the property outside of what was being given to them by you know the, the onsite PM. The other, I guess, kind of glaring part to me, but I see it all the time is they didn't execute any value add. They've owned it for about two years. And the inspector that we hired to inspect this property was the same inspector that inspected it two years ago when they bought it. And so the inspector comes on properties is like, I could probably just resend you the same inspection report you know, that I used two years ago. And and we actually did, but he was just like everything, all the red flags that I pointed out are still existing and they've advanced in, in severity. And so just knowing that there, was, there wasn't there was anything executed that like he didn't add any, you know, generally speaking as a multifamily syndicator, I'm thinking mm-hmm. you add value to the common areas first. Like let the tenant see that you're improving the place before you do interior renovations. So I'm thinking order of operation. So they're saying that like the foundation issues or subfloor issues have been outstanding for multiple years. There's like entire t- tiles missing in breezeways where, you know, kids could fall through the handrails have been loose for Lord knows how long. And there's like a solid crack down one of the foundations. It's not like, you know, hairline across the center blocks and stuff like that. And so the couple instances where there's just been neglect, you know, and it's just like, this needs like a capital injection and needs to be addressed. And you should have done this two years ago, by the way, when when it was recommended by the inspector that we hired today. And so what's funny is like, I see that all the time. You know, I'm I'm walking properties around the Nashville area and there's people that bought something, you know, two or three, Years ago and they've really enjoyed what the market's done and they said, you know what? Like I'm I'm getting increased rents. I'm I'm hitting my my year five projections and year one point five. Why would I bother putting my capital back into this place and you know when I can transact and sell again? That kind of goes against everything I've learned. So I would consider that a red flag for the operator, but I see it more than I should, I feel like.
1: No doubt that's happening a ton or has happened over the last couple of years. It's like we can charge so much more in rents and we didn't have to do anything, any capex, right? Uh no doubt there's tons of people that are cashing in on that and so uh, you do have to think you know consider that right you know they've done no improvements that doesn't mean it's not worth more you know right now of course however and, you know you're noticing things like the the crack in the concrete or the foundation all those things you were mentioning and some of those you may have already even known about right uh, but what was it the delinquency that you all found out about that finally was like okay, we just can't do this deal because of that. Obviously that changed your your debt, those things. But was that the initial thing that that changed everything to saying, you know what, we can't do this deal?
0: It was. The physical surprises, like we were able to talk through, you know, we got quotes of probably at about $150,000 in surprise capex based on the the foundation issues, subfloor and joist issues in every single building. And so we were able to talk through that. We took that off the top line purchase price. You know, we were trying to, to repurpose some of the money. So instead of, we budgeted about 250 for new roofs. And the roofing inspector said, Hey, based on recent storms, you could exercise an insurance claim and you'd probably pay higher insurance premium, but you wouldn't, you'd be able to repurpose that 250K for other projects around the apartment complex. And, and so they were, you know, on board with that. And so, like the physical surprises were not an issue. It was definitely the delinquencies and kind of the impact that would have to our investors and that just the elevated risk for a profile for that type of deal just wasn't really something we were comfortable
1: with. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I appreciate you just elaborating on some of that, especially the red flags for the seller and things that any buyer right now should be looking for as they're moving forward on, on deals right now. I want to switch gears a little bit because you also have a unique approach to, say, direct to seller marketing. Uh, and I'd love to walk through that a little bit. I know that's something that people want to know, right? Right? Uh, everybody's looking for that deal. They're pretty hard to find right now, obviously, with interest rates doing what they're doing. And, and today's a big day for that. I haven't heard how uh, or what's happened yet uh, as far as today, or maybe that decision hasn't been made yet. But anyway, tell us uh, a little bit about your unique approach, uh, and. Let's dive in
0: on the interest rates. I was actually looking it up this morning and I'm just going to like shake my head about what's going on. But anyways, what goes up must come down one day, hopefully. But uh, yeah, for the direct to seller stuff, it's, it's actually pretty unique. I think a lot of when when a lot of people think direct to seller, they think, Oh, I can't do that. Or I don't, you know, maybe I don't like talking to people or that's a burden and I need to pay for a list and I need to skip trace this, that and the other. And and they get really lost in really the marketing side of things um, before they even start, you know, analysis paralysis, you hear that all the time. And so we kind of, partnered with someone to do that for us it's actually um, so we're partnering with a broker to help us through this process so they are the front line the face what makes this unique you know aside from partnering with a broker is that we're finding properties that fit our buy box so we're looking anywhere from Louisville to Huntsville obviously that includes Nashville um, and then East Tennessee we're looking for 30 to 200 unit 1980s or later build we're using Reonomy just to understand inventory and then we take the properties that fit our buy box and then we send the addresses to the broker we're like can you give us code star reports give us rent comps, sales comps, give us an underwriting report that's generated from there. And so we look in and identify what are the ones that has rents top of market, automatically pass, disqualify those. We look for stuff that has a gap between market rents and current rents. And then we underwrite based on assumptions of maybe expense per door or expense ratio, 45%, 50%, whatever makes sense for the market. And then our, our first touch is an offer letter. If you compare that to historical direct-to-seller, like, it's like, you know, hey, Mr. Owner, I'd love to give you a free evaluation of your property. Can you just give me T12 front row due diligence talking and they start asking for stuff, right? So it's like you know they ask 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 and then give, whereas we're trying to give first to kind of make ourselves stand out. And so the broker handles the initial touches that really the magic is in the follow up, honestly, and then they do the the follow ups, you know, every month or quarter or or what have you that gets us, uh, you know, non
1: competitive environment and direct pulse to some of the uh, apartment owners. Awesome. I appreciate you walking through that process. I want to ask you a little bit about your partnership with the broker. Uh, And so you're, you know, you're using Reonomy as a software that helps you find that information about properties, right? I've heard of that. Maybe we've even had the founder of that on the show years ago. I can't remember now. It sounds familiar. But ultimately, you have the partnership with the broker, you're finding the deal through the software, all the details, you're underwriting it, you're asking for the co-star report, you know, what's expected from the broker then? Are, are they then taking your offer to the uh, owner, you know, themselves kind of working their, their normal process, but you found the deal? What does that look like that partnership?
0: For sure. Yeah, because it could go a couple different ways. It could get to the point where broker goes to the apartment owner and says, Hi, hey, you know, I have buyers ready to buy at this price. You know, really it's just kind of sitting on a table for a quarter. So if we wanted to revisit it, we'd have to update our offer anyways. But it's just saying, Hey, I have buyers for this property if you're interested in selling or transacting. I imagine it'll go one of two ways at that point. Yes, my partners and I do want to sell. We'll talk about it. It's got to make whatever return for us and our investors, and that's going to be our price point. And that's either going to fit in our buy box or it's not. If it's a property that is outstanding and super polished um, and they want to sell for retail price to an institutional investor, it's probably not us. That's probably going to be a situation where we kind of, we let go and say, all right, broker, you know, do your thing. I know it'll come back to me because I I believe in, you know, (laughs) in karma and and the circle of adding value uh, and and what that looks like. So I don't expect any sort of kickback in those types of scenarios, but it's a volume game, right? If you look at the funnel of, I need to generate so many leads to underwrite so many deals to get under contract in so many deals to close on something, I have to make my own lead. And that was our decision to do direct-to-seller since the turn of the year.
1: Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate the, the color to the process. And, and or just speak to, too, using that software. Is uh, that been something, is that like a, a deal changer? I, I mean, is that something that's like, man, this has just made it for us using this software? What would you recommend around that?
0: I would say that, so Reonomy compared to CoStar, I mean, we're, we're in middle of 2020 when I'm kind of citing these processes, but you're looking at probably $400, $600 a month for Reonomy, split between 2 people. People, that's okay. To co star, which is like a mortgage. Um, so in terms of like what's what's low-hanging fruit for the masses to kind of get their hands on and, and just kind of accept that data quality is what it is. Maybe it's just the law of averages, it's it's directionally correct. It's been super important for us. There hasn't been anything else that we've been able to find that's low-hanging fruit for us to understand commercial inventory.
1: Okay. Now that's helpful. I thought you said 2020 there, but ultimately the middle of 2022. Yeah, sorry. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. Just want the listeners to know that. So that's helpful though. That's helpful to think through well, you know, is that a software that maybe we should consider trying to purchase right now, you know, as somebody that's looking for deals, you know, as a, as a, the listeners thinking about their budget potentially and, and what that looks like for them. Shifting gears just a little bit to a few final questions here with your experience in the market now, and even the software that you're using, all these things that you're seeing, obviously, what do you predict over the next six to 12 months and how is that changing your all's buying strategy or, or is it?
0: Yeah. I've been waiting for this question all day, Whitney, um, even all month, but uh, yeah. So I guess my, my predictions in the market I've actually put a little bit of this on my LinkedIn feed there's like a, a some indicators you know indicating that if we do go into a recession that the fed is likely to decrease rates historically right if we ever go into a recession you know you know maybe a couple months quarters after the fed is going to lower interest rates to try to stimulate the economy yeah I, I kind of half joke that the sooner we go into a recession the better uh, with, with regards to interest rates and everything like that so I, I think that the fed right now is looking at pausing after september but I think that they're having to overshoot knowing that they need to come down eventually to get the economy healthy again. And so I think we're we're going to go into a recession, but I think that also historically, the longest recession has lasted 18 months. So I think interest rates are probably going to come down within an 18-month time span.
1: I think that's an interesting metric there to know as well, as far as the 18 months. And if you could even just run some worst case scenarios on the projects that you have right now, like, could we survive for 18 months, <laughs> All right? You got to be able to survive it, right? You know, when, when, you know, there's a downturn, man, are you prepared? I always ask, you know, about, uh, you know, people say, you know, about reserve budgets and those things, how they think about being prepared for a downturn. Are you prepared? You know, can you survive 18 months? Some people say, you know, they're ready to survive like six months. And that makes me a little nervous. <laughs> that, that's good. Good to think through as well. Uh, But maybe, you know, you can help us with that as well. Like, how are you all prepared for that downturn if you're thinking about, you know, those metrics?
0: Our fundamentals haven't changed. Um, I, I preach this all the time. It's like, you need to be buying cash flowing assets with ample reserves and, and opportunity to add value. And so, you know, I think it's getting harder to find a cash flowing assets with some of the debt that's out there nowadays. You know, the, the plan doesn't change. Just keep looking.
1: What's your best source for meeting new investors right now?
0: Right now, I actually broke this into a pie chart honestly but so it's like a a third is from my past life so my my professional colleagues i was
1: gonna say you are recovering electrical engineer engineer right (laughs) data scientist yeah
0: yes sir for sure yeah and so i'd say about a third is just from we'll call it the the friends and family ecosphere and then a third is from meetups in the form of conferences i mean real estate investor and you know not i go to some business conferences and entrepreneur conferences stuff that service the real estate industry but not real estate investors and then a a, other third is just a huge amalgamation uh, of people that I've known or been referred to
1: what business or entrepreneurial conferences would you recommend like outside of the real estate industry?
0: I'd say for me, like if I break it down to my customer avatar, right? It's, it's probably, you know, 30 to 65 year old working professionals, real estate professionals, and then just generally speaking, maybe business owners who are looking to shelter some taxes. And so conferences that I go to are probably servicing the business owners and real estate professionals. And you can marry the two. So a conference I was at last weekend, for example, was it had realtors, it had mortgage brokers, it had title escrow attorneys, Stuff of that sort, and so that was a, a great source. Where if you're a real estate professional on your tax filings, you get to really benefit from investing in apartment syndication.
1: Now, what are some of the most important metrics that you track? That could be personally or professionally. Once a week,
0: I always track the number of people that I talk to, and then also the number of offers that we make. Tracking the activity, so I'm tracking the leading goals, knowing that eventually it'll lag and get into some substantial milestones. So, um, making sure I'm, I'm networking and being active in acquisitions.
1: What about some? High- habits that you have that have produced the highest return for you?
0: I'm a big follower of Hal Elrod and the Miracle Morning. And I would say that you have to have balance, um, right? You can't, you can't build a tower of Pisa, you know, and expect it to go forever. Right. So you have to be balanced to have all, all of your pillars, you know, equidistant and growing simultaneously. And so I'm always meditating. I I read and I write every single day. I go through my thankfuls, what I'm thankful for. um, And then just my focus, so what do I need to do today for today to be a successful day? And then after that, it's it's headed discipline and determination. Intense curiosity, I think, would be.
1: What, what's the number one thing that's contributed to your success?
0: Oh, I gave it away. It's like three things, but headed discipline, determination, and intense curiosity. If that's if that's one thing. We'll say that's one thing. Yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, what about how do you like to give back? Right now, it's my time. So I, I just got back from a couple of coffees this morning from people that probably aren't going to add value to my business, but I love talking about real estate. And so they're asking me questions about the short-term rental business or how do I get started in multifamily this, that, and the other. And and that's my jam. But yeah, I love talking about that. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone and everyone, passive or active investors. If there's any way I can add value, I'll do it.
1: That's awesome. Tommy, pleasure to meet with you again and to have you own the show. Uh, you definitely added a ton of value today And to going through this, this fail, quote, failed project, right? I was thinking about the disappointment that probably was at the time because you mentioned like this was going to be the one that was going to allow you to go full time. And man, I can, just, I can just feel the letdown, right? You know, of when that happened, but. Man, I bet you're thankful now that it happened that way, right? Uh, ultimately, you, if you had done the deal, it may have caused you to it'd be even longer before you actually got to leave your J-O-B, right? So appreciate you just being real about that, sharing about that deal. Uh, even the red flags about the seller, I think it's very valuable. And then your unique approach to direct-to-seller marketing and partnering with a broker and doing that research yourself and going directly you know, with a an offer to that seller. That shows you mean business, no doubt about it, and that you've done some homework. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, how can the listeners Get in touch with you and learn more about you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Whitney. I appreciate the, the platform that you create here and, and all that you do. So if, if you want to learn a little bit more about, about me and what we do, we've built a platform on tbcapitalgroup.com. Um, so Tommy Brant, you know, capitalgroup.com. If you want to know a little bit more about uh, multifamily investing, I wrote a book on there. And so the there's definitely a download that you can learn more about. It's a free resource. I don't I do not monetize that at all on tbcapitalgroup.com. But um, if you want to get in touch with me, my calendar is on there actually. So tbcapitalgroup.com forward slash connect. We'll pull up my Calendly and then you can grab any 30 minute window that fit, aligns with your schedule. Other than that, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. Tommy Brandt, come
1: find me. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.